everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life to discuss their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is brought to you by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. Today's guest is Vu Ha, technical game designer at Meta. Vu takes us through his experience working on SimCity, Horizon Worlds, and his own indie titles he's developed with his company, Cosmic Adventure Squad. Vu also has a unique perspective on the future of game development. If AR and VR are being used to create new and immersive experiences for players, why can't they also be used to create new ways to develop games? It's a really cool conversation. We hope you enjoy it, and I'll see you after the show to wrap things up. So Vu, tell me how you got into programming and what, what, what made you want to pursue that? Yeah, um, I didn't really start programming until college, actually. I think in high school, I had some, like a website making class, just HTML, more or less. Um, but it wasn't until college I started taking CS classes as part of my major. Were you were you into games at all? Or was or does that, that come later, too, when you started getting more into programming? It's definitely into games. Um you know, growing up, I, I didn't really own a console until maybe the Genesis era. Um, but I had neighborhood friends that did have consoles, and I'd go to their house all the time, and we'd play games. And, you know, growing up, eventually we started doing, like, LAN parties at each other's houses, um, playing, like, StarCraft and WarCraft. That was big at, at my college was StarCraft LAN parties. I'd never done a LAN party before, and I was like, oh, my God, this is insane. Uh, the way people yeah. react to that stuff is just, we had some very serious StarCraft players. I got my butt kicked constantly at that. Any any games stand out to you that were at all influential, either in uh, your work in the past or present? Uh, definitely. I think for me, um, early on, early MMOs like Ultima Online were like really interesting and influential. At some point, I was like a GM on a private server. So kind of seeing behind the scenes of like how, you know, game items might get set up or how I might mod something to create like a new weapon in this this special version of the, you know, private server. Right. So that got the wheels turning a little bit. Yeah. It kind of helped me understand like, okay, this, the, you know, someone actually made this. It wasn't just like magically delivered. <laughs> that makes sense yeah that's the that's that's the funny thing too right it's like when we're younger we just think like these games just exist right and and we consume them and we're not really thinking about you know someone actually put like not just someone but a lot of people put a lot of time and effort and blood and sweat into this thing and and we just sort of you know but that's also the sign of a great experience we don't think about that stuff until maybe a little later on in life yeah that's right um so get the programming bug in school what what really made you start doing that Let's see. So I went to school, like undergrad, um, in a new major called computational media. It was kind of a hybrid of CS and liberal arts. So I would take like film classes and literature classes and design classes alongside of CS classes. And so that gave me like a sense of like, um, you know, there wasn't a, a fixed like path or career path for this major. So some people went and did like web design, some people went and did like general design and uh, I kind of tailored it to be more game design centric. And what kind of helped was there are a few classes there during, um, so I went to Georgia Tech and a class called 2261 where we learned how to program using like a Game Boy, a Game Boy Advance. And so you'd learn like C to, you know, do, you know, low level memory management to even like show a pixel on a screen. And this kind of really opened my eyes in terms of like, how do I, how does anything get made on a computer, right? At the end of the day, someone wrote like code that ultimately like read in data that ultimately showed it on the actual screens. You know, each pixel is actually represented by some piece of data. Um, so that class really like opened my eyes and like opened the real possibilities of like you can literally make anything with code, right? Like, and you can see that today in like some of the stuff we're seeing now, like with Midjourney, like even art is very, uh, you know, isn't off the table anymore. It's going to become very AI-centric, I think, more and more as time progresses. Yeah. And so part of that class, um, the final project was like to make a full GBA game uh, at the end of the day. And so that really like kind of cemented like, you know, anybody can make games, um, including me. Did you start doing stuff before the GBA game that like 
that that one experience did that really set you off in other directions that you explored too, or would or did you just put your your focus on that game you were making? I think um, that gave me like the academic reason to do it, but I think at the time there's also Global Game Jam was like first being introduced in like 2009, I believe, something like that. Mm-hmm. And I decided to participate in that as well. And that really also opened my eyes in terms of like, um, you know, it doesn't actually take that long or it doesn't have to take that long to make at least a prototype of a game that you'd be interested in playing. Yeah, we were talking about that a little before we started uh, recording just for people who are listening. And I was lamenting the fact that my teams in Global Game Jam never scoped properly. I was also probably to blame for that. How, how did you, did that, that teach you a lot about how you should scope a project, even though it is only over, what, 48 hours? Definitely. I mean, I think when you're thinking about it and you're trying to make a full, you know, fleshed out game experience during the 48 hour period, like you really go through all the steps of actual game development just in a really compressed form. And so you have to think about how much time can you budget for each feature or for each content production or, you know, where do you focus your time? And it really depends on like the genre or the the experience you're trying to make. And then how much time do you actually spend beforehand preparing and during like uh, the jam? Like, do you make tools that make it easier for you to make levels or do you bite the bullet and just like dive in and like try to hard code everything? Like those trade-offs uh, start to matter um, in that short time frame. Yeah, definitely. Did you make a lot of 2D stuff during game jam or did you try to dabble in 3D at all? Yeah, over the years, um, definitely started out doing mostly 2D. We'd use Flash. Um, I've luckily been able to stick with a core team of uh, me, art, and audio, like the trifecta. And then we'd been doing like jams, you know, four times a year um, over the course of you know since college. And some of our games have gotten like pretty viral, um, over, you know, very suddenly. Nice. Yeah, you guys must have a good uh, rapport with each other for wanting to do that four times a year. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And we we always try to do like a different kind of theme or um, aesthetic or genre when we're, we're doing the jams. A lot of people, they'll get uh, really used to and comfortable with like a certain style or a certain genre like platformers or pixel art. Um, but we, we try to, you know, test our test the waters, dip our toes and everything. And you still do that today? Yeah, there's actually a jam coming up in uh, at the end of the month that we're going to participate in. Cool. So you do the GBA project. Um, after that, were you pretty sure that this is what you wanted to do? I think so. And I think at some point I started tailoring all my classes to really get me into the game industry in some way. So I was starting to do like, you know, targeting graphics because I knew from somewhere that um, computer graphics engineers were like really always high in demand. Um, so I started taking like advanced math classes, graphics, and focusing on like any research opportunities that were like game related. So I got pretty lucky and was able to do like an augmented reality game really early on in my like uh, school career. From there, right? So what, what are your prospects like out, outside of school? Like once you get done with school, What's that like for you? In undergrad, it was, you know, or I'm making all these games. I'm making these side projects. Um, I was able to actually get, like, one of my Flash games licensed and, like, make a little bit of money through that. But uh, I never got, like, an internship or anything in undergrad. So, and I wasn't really, like, super keen on, like, going into the work field, like, immediately after graduation. So I decided to pursue, like, a master's, um, which really helped a lot, I think, um, in terms of giving me really like more shoring up of my computer science skills and also giving me opportunity to like um, actually like get an internship. And luckily I was able to get an internship at uh, Maxis, like Electronic Arts Maxis, uh, working on like the newer SimCity that came out a few years ago. And that really got my foot in the door. And from there it's, um, you know, once you have your foot in the door, you get experience, you get the connections that kind of help you drive your career further. Yeah, definitely. And I, I imagine also doing that master's program, you were mentioning now in undergrad, you sort of tailored your classes to, towards game development. And I think that's something that's great to know for anyone as a student or was a student learning through retrospect uh, in a way, because 
like that's I think so important and when you are learning is to be able to take the information you're getting and apply it to what you want to do as opposed to just doing the assignments right you're actually doing it in a way that will benefit you down the road that's right yeah and um I think when I was an undergrad we also were forming like new clubs at the time and one of my friends and I helped to form uh, what we call VG Dev at Georgia Tech, which is, I think it's still ongoing. It's a video game development club where we'd meet every Friday and, uh, you know, pitch games, work on games and like show progress every week. That really helps kind of encourage just like community of game dev at the school to really help, uh, you know, make it so it's something that we actively practice. Right. And a great way to network too, I imagine. Yeah. So you, you get into EA, you're working on SimCity. I mean, that's a big project. Like, take us through take us through that and what you what you did on that game. Yeah, so I was first uh, brought on as an intern, and one of the first things they gave me to do was to kind of refactor the entire data model and kind of extract certain like static data versus dynamic data for all the buildings, all the NPCs, all the you know systems, and that really taught me like you know how much data can be involved with a game and. You know, the studio for SimCity was like, I think at its peak, like over 150 people. And so really getting to see like all these different roles, all these different um, ways of working and like code review and design reviews and things like that. And really understanding like, you know, at a large scale, you can have specializations. You can have people that are like dedicated to like how the shaders might look for, you know, all the buildings, for example, and a different person that's just all about the UI uh, and et cetera. What did you learn the most about like automation there? Like what was automated that just like, because you were coming in while development was ongoing, right? You didn't come in before development started. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think it's like, you know, really understanding when you have so much data, like having efficient tools really speeds up your pipeline so that you can actually produce the content that you'd expect from like a, a large, you know, 60 plus hour game experience, right? And with SimCity, it's like a very UI centric game as well, where as you're clicking around, you get all this data, there's all these metrics happening, there's all these graphs and stuff. And like being able to, you know, pipe that data into a UI is very important. Having the opportunity to work with designers and uh, learning their processes, learning like game design thought. Um, at the time, like one of my mentors was Stone LeBron, which is like uh, a lead designer on the project at the time. He now works at Riot, I believe. Um, and he would give a class that he also teaches, I think, uh, I forget which school, but he teaches a game design class. And that gave me an opportunity to like learn even more, like a really formalized um, game design thinking from like a, a field expert, right? Um, and I think to me, that's like super invaluable, right? Like I, that's something you'd like pay money at a college to, to learn. Right, because you were probably just coming from it mostly as just thinking about it from, you know, making things work, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, like, through the game design, uh, game jams, and through the school, like, club, like, definitely thinking about design was a thing, but, like, thinking about it on such a large scale and thinking about, like, systemically, how does all of this fit together? Mm -hmm. um, and But also, like, the low-level stuff, like, what is the price of every single building? Like, what are the metrics that, like, it affects, things like that. Um, those really, you know, every single detail, like getting to see that actually happen and come to fruition, like really solidifies your understanding of how a game is made. Yeah. And what about like working with artists? Did you guys cross pollinate at all there in terms of working with the, with the art team? I would hang out with those guys all the time. Like my, my original background was that I wanted to be an animator. So I like practiced drawing and like making comics and sequential stuff before that was before getting into like tech, a tech school. Um, and that really, like I was, you know, connected with art in general. And so understanding the process from like concept art to actual model to actually inside of the, the build um, was really interesting on, you know, you, we have Unity and things today, but, you know, a lot of studios still have their own custom engines and they have different pipelines for how, uh, a model, say an FBX, actually gets consumed into the engine. You didn't do anything to really modify the engine there at that time, right? You were just you're focusing on like the UI stuff mostly and things like that, right? 
Yeah, so starting out uh, as an intern, I was touching a lot of the data and like writing automation scripts to separate data. But then um, as I finished that work, the next assignment would be like um, creating new UIs for how buildings might render their their relevant information. And there are different scenes, uh, like views of the, the, the world, I guess, or the city that told you different levels of data that um, I would have a hand in touching and like visualizing. So like things like if you're like far away from a building, like the draw calls and stuff like that, right? Yeah. So I, uh, I wasn't involved with that so much, but I was involved with like, you know, say you did want to like select this one individual that's walking around. I, I was working on this, the systems that would let you do that. And it would tell you it's that person's history, where they're headed, their name, and you might find another person there. There's like a procedural system for like pulling the correct name uh, from the whole bank of all possible names, combining it in the right way and figuring out like where did they live? Like you could follow the, their entire like lifespan. Because um, <laughs> we're actually simulating it, like all of it. Right. How does time work? I haven't played one of the Sim games in a while. How did time work in SimCity in terms of like the lifespan of a character? For SimCity specifically, it was probably closer to like when you created like a plot of land that was residential, for example, we would assign it like some ID or some characteristics that would be able to use that data to derive like who would live there, like how many people and like the cars and things that they have. And so a lot of it was like, you know, we're trying to be efficient in terms of memory and, um, data in general. So we try to uh, make it so you can derive everything rather than having to store individually like this person, like make a database on the back end. Because you might have like hundreds of thousands of people in your town, right? And that would just take up a lot of space on your hard drive. Take me through, you're talking about code review earlier. Take me through like a code review, like scenario when you're working on this game, how that would work. Yeah. So we used uh, Perforce at the studio at the time. And this would let you kind of check out files and make changes and then you'd submit a file or you submit your changes. What the studio would like to do for engineers would be you'd have like code review buddies. And so there's always someone else that understood your area of code or your area of the software. So in you know pre-pandemic age, we'd sit in an office together. And in this case, like I'd actually ask somebody to come to my desk, walk with me through the code changes I've made play test the thing that I've changed and then they basically sign off and I'd be able to submit that into, you know, the, the live mainline code branch. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's automated systems that like create builds and tests, like all the things just to make sure you didn't break anything. But there's also like real life QA people that will play through and also check, um, if your feature works properly or not. Well, I love that first part of it, especially where you're really just getting, you know, sort of just someone come in and just inspect what you did, play test it right there, make sure everything's good before it goes along the chain of uh, QA. Yeah, I think now with like the pandemic and like work from home situation, a lot of places are, you know, more doing, you know, asynchronous digital code reviews, right? Where you might submit it to some staging area. Someone else can like look at it and maybe even pull it down and test it locally. And hopefully they tested it properly um, and then, like accept those changes, but you know, it's, it's a lot less, um, hands-on. It's a lot less like personal, um, nowadays, I think. Do you prefer, you prefer the personal way more than the remote way? I do. I think that it created, you know, more quality review, if that makes sense. And there's a lot more deeper understanding. So like if, if I got hit by a bus one day, like the game wouldn't just like halt in that area. Right. And so you were, you were only at EA for, about seven seven months for this this title, right? Yeah, I was. Um, so I did an internship for a summer, and then they extended it another semester. So that made me like offset with my graduation cohort. Um, uh, but then they they gave me a full time offer, and I once I graduated, I joined back as a full time engineer. So the game eventually the game shipped, I believe, while I was finishing college, and then uh, after I came back, they were working on some expansion packs. Um, so I worked on the UI for some of those. And then at some point there's some shifts in direction in terms of like where the studio is heading. And I was able to join a team that was doing like new IP incubation. Um, so I got to experiment with a lot of, um, cool new gameplay and like some, some advanced technology that, um, 
I probably can't talk about. Gotcha. So his projects never really saw the, the light of day, it sounds like. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> Otherwise, I'd probably still be at EA. <laughs> but like, especially with, I imagine there's like a lot of rapid prototyping and, and really trying to find the fun there uh, in that process. Like even if it was nothing came to fruition, I bet that was just like a, that was probably like a little game jam in and of itself. Right. Definitely. There was definitely a period where, um, we'd basically spend, you know, one to two weeks on different concepts and just jam it out. And then towards the end of my time at EA, like we were working on like a much bigger pitch to, um, kind of compete with some of the the trends that were happening there uh, at the time. Take me through a little bit of, um, the Cosmic Adventure Squad stuff. This is your own company, right? Or are you making your own your own games? Yeah, so I think it's Cosmic Adventure Squad kind of stuck with that name after our first game jam, and then we decided to uh, just keep using it and kind of brand all of our game jams and other like side projects under this one umbrella group, I guess. Um, yeah, and so we've been just keeping that up and using it as a way to kind of brand ourselves, but also like, you know, do some tax write-offs as well, <laughs> things like that. Sure. Well, I, I didn't play all of your games. I played some of them. I really enjoyed, uh, in particular, Stagnatum and Deepest Sword. I, I thought Stagnatum's art style was great and the overall, what you're doing. Like, I, I, I get that you guys really like messing with the environment with a player and how you can approach it sort of in a unique way. Deepest Sword in particular, where you're using the sword to kind of move around and not just attack things, I thought was a really innovative way to use a weapon in a game I hadn't really seen that much or at all. Yeah, definitely. Um, we have like a very well-honed set of things that we do now for all of our game jams. So I can kind of take it through from like, you know, day one, day two, day three. Um, so the first day we often will, you know, we're waiting for the theme, of course, but we're also preparing our dev environment. So we always, you know, update Unity, we set up a Git repo, we, um, you know, set up some documents or Figma now to kind of get ourselves ready to start brainstorming an idea. Once we have the theme, then we go, just go wild in a Google Docs and just like, no idea is too dumb. <laughs> and just, just go through, type out whatever you think is relevant to understanding the game. The things to focus on there are like, what is actually the game loop? Like, I think a lot of people get too hung up on the theming or the like setting of the game and the story of the game, but they don't think too much about like, okay, what's the player doing on a minute-to-minute -minute basis? What's what's driving them to you know get to point A and B, and uh, what what happens when they get to point B? Um, so we'll think about you know the the setting a little bit in terms of like, does it matter in terms of what the game is doing. So for Deepest Sword specifically, we had a bunch of different ideas and the theme at that time was uh, deeper and deeper was the, the theme for the jam. Um, so we had some ideas about like digging tunnels and like going deeper into the earth. We had some ideas about like, um, you know, like tech trees getting deeper and deeper and things like that. Um, but Deepest Sword kind of uh, worked out for us in terms of like, it's a platformer and you, have a sword that's getting longer and we were like it'd be cool if you're fighting a dragon and you need to get a longer and longer sword but what if the you know the environment itself was also getting longer or deeper as well so we're trying to like mash like how many times can we use that like theme in one kind of experience i mean the thing that i was really struck by is like i died very early on i'm terrible at most games and the thing i liked the most was like sword you're carrying really isn't that long initially and you still have to use it to move in the environment like you yeah. would like stick it down i'm just trying to describe it to people who haven't played it but you're like stick it on the ground and sort of pole vault yourself almost over like uh, obstacle right and then i got killed and then everything got harder the sword grew which made it harder to move i went deeper <laughs> yeah. into the earth's core or wherever i was underground um and it made the game even harder and that was just a really cool way of one establishing the tone of your game and it was a fascinating design decision to me to do that and the way that that sword impacts the level design um i thought it was really really nice piece of game design there yeah i think with the game environment like we're trying to minimize the amount of content that we need to make to to fulfill it so being able to reuse those earlier levels as you're getting a longer sword and moving through again um, it was really key to kind of designed the level so that they actually felt different every time you went through because your sword is slightly longer now. And so 
there's definitely a lot of like trial and error. Like I think the way we structure it is often I'll make a prototype on the first night even, and we decide at that moment, is this even fun? Um, so at the beginning, like we could run around, we could jump. It was like a classic platformer with the sword. And then uh, I tested out like, what if we use the sword to like latch onto this ledge? And that kind of felt good, but it kind of felt pointless if you could jump. And so like, I was like, what if we just remove jumping? And that really stuck. And that really opened our eyes in terms of like, okay, we know this concept now. We understand like, um, you know, you can use a sword to rotate around and navigate. We have a clear constraint of not being able to jump. And now it's about like finding the puzzle elements that can work with this and like kind of finagling the physics and finagling the level design to really create situations and uh, puzzles that would be like hard and but also like make you feel clever when you solve it. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was really rewarding and it was nice to play because I when it started, I was like, oh, it's going to be a platformer. That's how it looked. Right. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This is really, really unique. This is really innovative. Um, yeah. Are you guys thinking about working on that more to expand it outside of a, a game jam project? Or I mean, I think it's a fantastic title. Yeah. So we uh, we have it published on Steam and we're planning to release it on mobile fairly soon. Um, we did get reached out by some publishers like uh, shortly after we like released it for the jam, um, but unfortunately those kind of fell through. But I think we can just you know roll it ourselves because it's not it's already viral. <laughs> so good that should be. I mean it's a, it's a really really cool idea and you guys executed it very well. I got to finish. I still haven't finished it, but I really like immediately within two minutes I was like this is this is unique. This is something I haven't really seen before. This is cool and it handles really well and you feel like you know you feel the weight you, right you feel the weight of the sword you feel the weight of the sword it has a great weight to it and it changes depending on its size and you want to figure it out you want to figure out how to do it it's one it'd be one thing if i was like oh this is a typical platform i just got to make sure i'm timing my jumps and then just removing jumps just makes me want to just keep getting back on that horse and the levels are very well laid out um yeah really dig it yeah thank you Take me through uh, sort of after EA, you start getting more into like uh, VR stuff, right? And really hammering that out and, and AR. Like take me through develop. Like let's start with AR. Everybody knows VR at this point. I, I still feel like some folks uh, kind of confuse the terms or don't exactly know what AR is. But I imagine developing for that is just absolutely wild um, in terms of being able to like you know, quote unquote, see things in the real world, but you're not really seeing them. So I, yeah, please take me through programming for something like that. Totally. So uh, let's, let's go back a little bit to college. Uh, for college, I worked under um, a professor, Blair McIntyre, who was kind of like a pioneer of AR and VR technology and stuff. And so I was able to work with him to um, make like some v AR experiences. Back then, Qualcomm had released an SDK called Vuforia, but it was called like Qualcomm AR SDK or some, some long name before that, that enabled phones to do, you know, simple AR, like marker tracked AR, uh, where you say you have a sheet of paper and then you can render content relative to that. So as part of um, my research with him, we had made um, a game called Nerd Herder, which like use your phone as a motion controller to be able to control like a little fishing rod on top of your phone. And then you'd use this to like move a donut and cause like little miniature nerds in this little office space looking thing. That I've was like seen that somewhere on, on your desk. Yeah. I think if you, uh, it was one of like the, the games that were advertised as like part of, you know, you can make games at Georgia tech sort of thing. Um, Maybe that's where I saw it. Cause I remember seeing that. Oh, you know what? we were talking about this. Um, we were talking about this before the show, but, Vu and I both know uh, or knew Tony Singh, the great uh, former teacher at SCAD, unfortunately passed away. But that's where I saw Nerd Herder. He, that was like a pre. There's a presentation on it, a pitch, a pitch deck. Yeah. Or something. He showed us. That's where I remember. He showed us that, and it was like, this is how people should make their uh, make your pitch deck presentation for your <laughs> game for your senior project. So that's where I heard of that. So that's cool. You worked on that. Yeah, and so I had this history of you know working in AR before working in games and so after kind of like kind of getting fed up with uh you know the ea process and not 
having our green, games greenlit from the incubation process, I decided to leave EA. I joined a company called Phenomena, um, which at the time they were founded by people that used to work at that game company and Keita Takahashi of um, Katamari Damacy fame. Oh, nice. So yeah, I was I able love, to. I love that game company. I'm automatically yeah. jealous. <laughs> and so I, I got to work with these people. Uh, and at the time, the studio was only like maybe 14 people at, at its peak uh, while I was there. And we had a contract with um, Google to create something using Google Tango, which is a precursor to all this like AR kit, uh, AR core sort of feature set that phones have today. Um, but we made a, a game called World, which uh, Keita Takahashi creatively directed, uh, where you got to have like a little companion creature that had a little quest. And as you're using your phone, you can look around and it's meshing your environment. It's understanding your like the walls and the floors and ceilings of your world. And it's revealing new content as you're going about. So, um, and we're using like the touch interface to be able to like interface with the things in the world. And uh, it, it's really hard to explain <laughs> as, you know, imagine explaining Katamari Domacy, it's like pretty weird. Right. Um, so there's like two modes, there's like a, a kind of campaign story mode where you're collecting all these items and helping this little character kind of get back to his dimension more or less. Um, and then there's a creative mode that lets you kind of just use all these props and things and decorate your house. And there's things that are like flowers that can bloom if you like rain water on them. There's like springy suns and stuff like that. There's all these like systemic things that make your environment like kind of come to life. And we, we also made a mode for that that was like kind of a shooter where <laughs> like a toilet comes out of space <laughs> and <laughs> shoots poops at you and you can, <laughs> it, it's very strange. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so that, that was like really fun to do because it's very experimental and it wasn't about like making money necessarily. It's just about like, what can you do with this tech and how can it uh, really like you know, take advantage of that as a, a medium. Right. Um, I actually have a GDC talk about like the postmortem for that game. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, I remember I was looking at it before we, before we talked and it's, it's, uh, the art style is crazy. Yeah. Like it's got that Katamari, you know, kind of feel to it. Very, very out there. Um, but yeah, it's one of the things that that's, that was interesting, especially around that time. It's like, there wasn't really like a kind of gameplay, or define gameplay of what it should be. It was just like, it just sounds like it was like a tech exercise, but a fun looking tech yeah. exercise, nevertheless. Yeah. And I think at the time, like the only other comparable thing was like the HoloLens. Uh, yeah. Like the HoloLens one. And so, mm -hmm. but like using a phone, you kind of had more fidelity. There's no like kind of transparency of the, the digital stuff that you would get with like um, a AR headset. So what was that like to test? Like when you guys were testing that, what's that? What's that process like? What are you? What are you change? What are you seeing? Then what are you changing? Yeah, so we we're using Unity at the time, and I think no, yeah, we'd have to build every time to the headset or to the device, like the phone. And so we'd, you'd make an APK, you'd install it, and then you then you could test. And so we'd have to think about like, you know, how are you holding the phone? Is it portrait or is horizontal? What if you change? Does that does it auto adapt? Things like that. And the phone didn't really support you know, all the ways you could use it, right? And you didn't get the right events necessarily. So you had to like kind of get gyro data and other things to figure out the semantics of like how the player's using the phone. But then you also have to reason about the environment itself. Like every person's environment is completely different, right? Like I have a coffee table here, you have a coffee table there, you have a kitchen island, maybe I don't. Um, and so you have to kind of generate all of the content in situ in a way that's still is conducive to the gameplay, right? Because, um, and you, but you don't know necessarily, like, do they even have enough space? Like, uh, and so you have to kind of reason about this, the environment in some intelligent way, or you give agency to the player to kind of decide where things go and kind of make your systems kind of agnostic about where, where things might be. Well, one of the things that would concern me just looking at it, if I were to work on this would be like, just how the colors are interacting with like, you know, someone's, someone's house right yeah and then with that and then with the colors that you guys have picked for all the things that are going into 
that environment, right? Did you guys have some sort of language to look at, evaluate the colors in a room and then change things based off how someone, you know, the, 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 the color scheme of someone's room they were in, or was there anything like that? Yeah, there's nothing like that per se, um, but we did kind of pick very high contrast colors for all the elements that like we control. Mm-hmm. And so most people's houses are not, you know, so colorful and so high contrast that um, the things that we have for the game would would kind of blend in too much. But there's definitely cases, you know, since it's meshing your environment and this can create like obscure, uh, like some of the characters could go behind your table and you'd lose them. We'd have to really think about like, how do you get those characters back or how do you like get notified where they are? Um, so like creating new shaders and, and things like that to help like show a silhouette, for example, behind a table for that character really helped um, make make navigating the game better and make understanding like what's happening easier. Well, take us through some of these these things you worked on for uh, for Meta. We actually had talked to someone who's worked on the the Horizon Worlds, and it, lo- it looks really cool. Um, but definitely interested in getting your perspective on VR development, especially because a lot of these projects I've, that you've worked on, I believe, are are VR uh, related. So definitely want to get some. Uh, we talked about AR. Definitely want to get into your experience with VR. Yeah, so j- just for the audience, the distinction between like AR and VR. So AR, you kind of have like the world itself as like the underlying image, and then you can superimpose digital content like models and things on top of that. Versus VR, you kind of have full control. You're fully immersed into that environment, and it's more like you place yourself inside of a traditional video game, and you can look around more naturally. With Horizon specifically, so I've been on the Horizon team for about three and a half years. So I've seen it from like before any person in the public was able to see it to to now. Um, and one of the, the best things about Horizon is that you can build the entire experience within VR itself. So Horizon itself is a social platform that lets you meet up with people, play games, see movies, see, see like concerts and stuff. But it's also like a game creation platform or a VR experience platform. So traditional VR development usually means like you're, say you're working in Unity, you're typing code on your desktop or your your keyboard, and then you hit build, and then you have to like take your headset, put it back on your head, um, test the stuff, take your headset off, and then start typing and cha- making changes again. With Horizon, you can actually just stay in the headset the whole time, and you can test things immediately and with other people. So um, I feel like I'm kind of giving a marketing spiel. No, it's but. no, no, because like I think that's one of the cool aspects of it. It's it's a very UGC user generated content, but it's doing it in a way that we haven't seen before, like in a VR platform. I mean, yeah. you think that's like a trend that's going to continue? That people are going to keep trying to do that? I think uh, I think so, but I think it's it's very hard though, right? Because you have to build. You're like building the tools as you're in the world, or you're building the the experience as you're in the world. Um, but kind of, it's, it's really magical, right? Cause, uh, it's not just you alone. It's you and, you know, up to three people in that world and you can build, uh, immediately. So I could like pull out a giant block. You could stand on it. I could move you while you're standing on it. And that could inform like how we structure the world. Um, and you can scale yourself up to like be massive and, and like help, that helps you like position things um, in the world and like change the layout and like add behaviors. You can also like script and everything in there as well. And so like you could be scripting and then like your friend in VR could come over to your shoulder and like actually see what you're doing, for example. And it's just like really powerful and really strong like teaching um, possibility there too. So how do you see Horizon sort of expanding as, as time goes on, like what, like, I mean, I know you can't like get into the specifics of it and all, but just in terms of like the core experience of a, of a player in terms of what they, you know, should expect based off where you guys are today. Yeah. I mean, I think with where we are today, like, uh, you can go in right now and, you know, set up your character and start experiencing all the wonderful worlds people have made. There's like thousands of worlds now, I believe. Um, and, uh, you know, all the things in horizon right now are made by real people. Like we're using the same tools that our, you know, regular users are using to create worlds. 
uh, and experiences. And you can experience things like comedy clubs, um, games, uh, you know, PvP shooters, and action RPGs, like all, all kinds of things, and also hangouts and stuff. But you know, people are using it in ways that we didn't expect or didn't you know really specifically tailor to. Like I've seen churches, I've seen schools, I've seen uh, places to put on plays, I've seen just like meditation resorts and things like that. Like it's all kinds of diverse content in the platform already. Um, and people are, you know, all the tools to make all these things are available right off the bat. So you can go in and you can make your own like house, you can make your own world, your own game, whatever you want. I mean, I love that idea of, of the things that happen that you don't expect the emergent play. I always find that to be one of the, the coolest things when something does something, somebody does something with a game you made that you just did not anticipate at all. Um, that's always a that's always a joy. But was there like a particularly challenging aspect of, of development with this with this title that you can look back on that you like overcame, or was it just buttery smooth? I think that I mean it's definitely a like interesting development process. It's it's definitely very different from you know a traditional game company uh, like Meta as a whole versus say like uh, Electronic Arts like a studio at Electronic Arts. Um, you know, traditional game studios are very, very top-down. Like you have a director, you have a creative designer, you have you know, people that have clear, clear picture of what um, is to be made, and then kind of mandated down, and you're kind of helping to create that vision, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, with a company like Meta, it's often much more bottoms up. Um, and you might have heard this, where like there might be like a general like goal to create, but the solution's not presented, and the solution's not set in stone. If that makes sense. So oftentimes, a team is like, "You, you're making the creation tools, right? But what does that mean? What are the feature sets that you need? What are the, um, you know, how do you prioritize that? And so all of that is up to the teams themselves to, to determine. So we will we'll do. It's more like formal UXR where we'll interview people. We'll have surveys and stuff like that and kind of understand and learn what people need or want and then we make our best guess and we try to make it so it's much more like software development than it is a game necessarily because it's a it's more of a platform than it is a specific game i bet that's kind of cool being a part of that having been a part of a traditional game company and going something where you guys are kind of forging a new sort of way of doing things in a way yeah and uh there's there's always kind of conflicting opinions right um Mm -hmm. uh because some people do come from a more games traditional background, and so they'll have uh, notions about you know what should this should be, what should this support first, and then the other people come from like a social media development background, and so there's different conflicting ideas, and you kind of have to like see through all that and push forward in terms of like what is best for the users themselves, the people that are actually engaged and actually want to be part of this like new kind of frontier of, I guess, the metaverse in some way. <laughs> With AR and VR changing the way that games are experienced as players, do you think that they, it can also change the way that games are developed? Uh, we're in a kind of a transitional phase where we still have to use our computers, our desktops, our traditional like flat screen development tools to really uh, you know, take advantage of building and all these established things like Visual Studios, uh, Adobe, Photoshop, Maya, et cetera, et cetera. All these things are built purposely for this kind of 2D workflow. And I, I hope in the future that like this slowly shifts to more and more native um, development so that, you know, say you're developing an AR uh, or developing an AR application once we have like headsets and stuff that just do it naturally, like glasses. Um, then like at one point, at, at some point, like hopefully we'll lose these monitors, lose the need for like, uh, just flat screen development. Like there's no reason that we shouldn't be able to like model a model just in front of us in 3d space where I can just tilt my head and look at a side versus having to have, if you look at Maya, you'll often have like four different views of the, the model and different angles because you're ultimately crafting in a 2d medium for a 3d content if that makes sense no that's a great that's a great thought and i imagine especially 
as a, yeah, as an artist, right. Being able to really, really get into the world and actually work in the world would be so advantageous. Definitely for art. And even for programming, like, uh, we have a lot of paradigms that are very, uh, text centric and also very like, um, you know, flat tools centric, <laughs> if that makes sense. And, and like folder structures that are very 2d centric, but like, imagine a folder structure that was 3d, like had depth, like what does that do? What does that change? How much extra space do we have now? How many extra layers of data could we encapsulate by just like looking down the depth of our you know vision, right. Versus having to, you know, pan the, the scroll bar, right. Uh, things like that. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love, I love where your head's at with that. And, uh, these views are my own. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. To sort of piggyback off that, any sort of issues you have now with like the 2d folder structure or can you dive a little deeper into that? I, I mean, I I've been working with, you know, the horizons creation tool. It's like in VR for the last say three years. And there's definitely things where like having that visual and kind of like spatial memory of where things are in those worlds is so powerful where like I can just fly myself over here and I have my whole like other setup of panels and things that I can mess with um, to modify this like experience that I'm doing versus on a 2D screen. Like I'm like diving through folders, like clicking through hierarchies of, um, you know, like the scene graph and things like that in Unity, for example, versus like in VR, like that, that tree over there, I'm just going to go to it and look at it and inspect it directly. I'm not like, it's, it's much more visual and it's much more direct in, in a lot of ways. Um, that's not to say that there aren't like things that could be improved. Right. But, um, you know, I think it's a matter of time to, to improve those things rather than like really wanting to go back. Like I really don't want to go back to you know traditional development in a lot of cases. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's definitely like mind opening for sure. And then it would be cool if like for 3d, you could just, you know, if you're in the game, right. And you could just like hit a button that would show you your, your folder structure or something within that world. Like, would you have an idea about like what that would look like? Or am I yeah. off track with that? I mean, I think the the kind of information hierarchy of like panels and like folders and and websites and texts and things like that, like mm -hmm. those aren't going anywhere because those are right. pretty efficient. Right, they're universal too. Yeah, but you know, we, but we can think about like unlocking the limitations that we currently have. Like, I only have this laptop monitor in front of me, but like, there's no reason I couldn't have like. 600 of these in VR, right? Right. Or like right. just one super long panel that encapsulates the entire like length of this recording, for example. Sure. Um, <laughs> it would create some sort of visual element that could coincide yeah. with the audio or something. Yeah. 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 That'd be cool. And so there's these like physical limitations that we have because we're so used to working in like, you know, a 15 inch monitor or whatever um, that we need to kind of break away from to like really embrace like the, the next generation of technology, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that's a, such a great point. I'd never really thought of like, there has been so much innovation in terms of what we experience, but, and, and how we make it. But I think taking it really to that next level is exactly what you're talking about. That would just benefit anyone who wants to make a game. Yeah. And, and, you know, we've spent, I don't know, the entirety of computing like with that paradigm so mm -hmm. it's going to take a while to get to you know where the existence of a monitor is not really important anymore so i guess uh people at hp should uh be afraid and anyone else who's making <laughs> monitors samsung dell etc etc <laughs> i'm sure they'll get into the game eventually <laughs> oh yeah then they'll realize that when everything's antiquated it's like oh man we got to do our own version of this um any any sort of uh, prospective programming advice for people who are getting into it or maybe studying it, or maybe they're, they're fresh out of school, any sort of resources or exercises you think that could benefit somebody who really wants to, um, follow in your footsteps, so to speak. Definitely. I think, um, one of the best websites I've found to kind of teach programming for games 
or concepts of that is, I believe, called uh, programming gameprogrammingpatterns.com. They have uh, free free uh, books, or, it's, or I guess it's, it is a free book that um, you can view online, and it teaches you things like um, very common programming patterns, but also like why you might use them. For example, like singleton pattern or uh, flyleaf pattern or command structure, things like that that just make your game development and the way you structure your code and everything like much more succinct and scalable so that you know if if you're adding one more enemy it's not like you have to redefine everything you can actually pull uh data and stuff from existing enemies for example uh anything else you want to plug you want to plug cosmic adventure squad or anything else that you're that you're working on outside of uh outside of meta <laughs> definitely sure yeah visit cosmic uh this is where i have all of the game jam games i've worked on or the le- latest ones that should all still work. Um, rest in peace, Flash. And um, <laughs> feel free to play. All the games there are available for free, ad-free. And uh, thanks for trying them out. Yeah, definitely. No one has any excuse. Especially played. I'm sure they're all great, but especially played Deepest Sword, man. That is, that is some great innovation right there and just, just pure design. Such a simple idea, but it works wonders. Well, cool, Vu. Thanks for stopping by and talking with us. This was great, and um, best of luck on on Cosmic Adventure Squad and, and your work at Meta. And, and uh, thanks again. This is fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. All right, that's going to wrap up our show. We want to thank Vu again for being our guest this week. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud.